0: They told her it was just a bad dream. She knew it was real. It became a nightmare on Elm Street. Now there's a new kid on Elm Street. And Freddy's been waiting.
1: I'm afraid to go to sleep.
2: Stay up all night if we have to. I'm not gonna let
1: anything
2: happen to you. Freddy's back. And this time he's
0: not fooling around. You are all my my children children now. A
2: Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. It's coming soon. Watch out for it.
0: Right, Shocktober continues here at Reconcinimation. I am John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And welcome back to Reconcinimation, the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, we've been looking at horror movies like we do every October. We've taken a look back at The Fog. We've looked at, we, we went to TV last episode with Werewolf, which was a television pilot from Fox's uh, first year on the air. And now we're returning back to uh, motion pictures with the, the next uh, chapter of the nightmare on Elm street series. But it's an extra special day because we have one of our favorite guests back with us. That's right. It's laser graves, EK Wimmer. Welcome back
1: to the show, buddy. Hello guys. (laughs) It's good to be back. Hi. So, <laughs> so great to, have, to have, you. have you. Yeah, thanks.
0: Um, and this is a big one. There is uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. And uh, there is a lot of meat on the bone for this
2: one. Yeah, this one's uh, certainly got... Uh, a, uh, I think people have different perspectives on this one, without a doubt.
0: <laughs> and, and that was a little bit of a pun intended on my part there, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, look out! That's where we're going this week. <laughs> Diving right in, John.
2: Not pulling any punches, huh? No,
0: no. There's uh there's a hell of a lot to to get to here, and we're You've gonna get your right... pop
2: guns out. All right, let's go. <laughs>
0: pop guns. We've got our cool shades, oh. <laughs> our whatever that hat was, and and we're, we're going. Uh, all right, guys. So Nightmare on Elm Street two. We um we covered Nightmare on Elm Street one a year ago, and and. This is following right on the heels of the success of, of Nightmare on the Street Part One. And what what do you guys, what's your early memories? When was the first time you saw uh, Nightmare 2? Did you catch it? I'm sure none of us caught it in the theater, but uh, home video, VHS, or a little bit later on? Uh, EK, what about you?
1: Uh, this is one that I saw really early on. I think I've discussed this before is my parents didn't really <laughs> keep good tabs on my movie watching. And so if a friend had it or I could get a hold of it, I would watch it. And I, I got through all the nightmares in elementary school for sure. Uh, part two, my, my special memory with part two is I actually had a t-shirt. It must have been a small or something like that because it fit me but I had an original Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 t-shirt that I wore to school. I think I must have traded some neighborhood kid for it and immediately got sent to the principal's (laughs) office. (laughs) But uh, for that reason alone, Part 2 has always been a little nostalgic for me just because I remember feeling connected to it from a very early age and being very scared by it. Keep in mind, this is not quite uh, goofy Freddy yet he's still pretty serious in this one for the most part.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. This isn't the uh, the the Freddy that we knew as we kind of moved through the 80s. We're still much more along the lines of the first uh, installments version of Freddy Krueger. But um, David, how about you? You see this recently, or or was this an older one for you?
3: No, no I mean I
0: I saw this in the theater way back in the day.
3: Uh, oh, you did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a Saturday evening, if I remember it right, and we just got off tour the previous night, and, uh, well, the gang and I thought it'd be groovy, so we, we'd summon up the posse, we bum-rushed the, the movies, and, uh, I got Angie, Jeff got <laughs> Tina, Ready Rock Awesome Girl i never seen in my life, um, uh, it was alright, though, the lady was chill, and we dipped to the theater, set the ill, and, uh, bugging just Cole having a ball, and, um, something oh, about nice. elm street was the movie we saw <laughs> uh okay all right those are fresh prince lyrics um <laughs> that came out i think after the second movie um, That's awesome <laughs> but uh but that song made me like the idea of elm street and not actually like but not wanting to watch elm street because i did you know i'm spooked out but um i saw it <laughs> re- <laughs> i saw it recently for the sh- for the sh- podcast but um it's funny though it's, I don't know how this would have happened in the last I don't know five years but the the pool party and the the, the horror of the pool party I've seen that somehow because I remember I don't know maybe I just saw a clip or, or maybe it was on
2: yeah I think that oh. clip shows up a lot in in like uh, horror film documentaries or, mm-hmm. or like just mm-hmm. in clip reels. Yeah, you know I'm watching those because I know you're watching a lot of the horror film documentaries. (laughs) Yeah, but um, on full rotation.
3: Yeah, but I remember being kind of horrified, like, oh, this is like this is really because a bunch of teens are just getting slaughtered like left and right, like, and just dying. Uh, I thought it was kind of that was it was a lot. So then to watch it again, I'm like, well, there's no way, like, I I didn't think that was that scene was in this movie. I thought it might have been another something. Anyway, so yeah,
0: uh, I saw it more or less. As a whole in the last uh, couple weeks so you've got the fresh perspective that we're, we're counting on that david yeah we're all veterans of the movie so we we need your uh your ideas to bounce off of sure okay the <laughs>
1: the, the fresh prince perspective oh, yes yeah.
3: nice it was my first it was my first single of dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince like hearing it on the radio i think and I, I thought it was really funny it was a great song I think, oh, that's and, great and oh, yeah. i could i couldn't tell if that was really Freddie on it but it was a sound alike and then i had never seen the video until actually recently because they couldn't they never they never discussed like actually doing a nightmare in my on elm street licensing like for it yeah so they, <laughs> and then so the Freddie character in the the thing is, some weird looking dude that looks nothing like Freddy Krueger. So <laughs> hilarious. I think he's like in a purple suit or something. And he's that's funny. Metallic face or something like that. It's really pretty, crazy.
0: Pretty, yeah, that's pretty close to Freddy.
3: Yeah. yeah. But uh it just was a generic
2: uh, I don't know. Anyway. T one thousand Freddy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh Brentsky, what about uh what about you? Did you catch us uh I imagine you caught this pretty quick when it hit video?
2: It's strange, you know. I've I didn't I was aware of it for certain? I and I think the first time I saw it was again, uh, over at my neighbor Travis's house. Uh, his older sisters were watching it on HBO, but I only caught the bus scene because we were just kind of mm-hmm. like walking through the room when they were watching it. So the opening bus scene, okay, caught that, and then. For whatever reason, it never entered my consciousness again, like to go back and see what the rest of that movie was about. Now, I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, and I've seen three through whatever, six or seven, a handful of times for sure. But like, I kind of went from the first Nightmare to Nightmare 3, and Nightmare 3 was on repeat constantly watching that one and part four, over and over again, but I never went back to watch part two until probably just, honestly, a couple years ago. I think after we did, maybe it was last year, even after we did the recording for the first one. And I was like, oh, I know we're going to do the second one. And I've heard things, but I I always heard that this one wasn't necessarily very good. So it never really, um, compelled me to go like catch it for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad I've seen it. It is an interesting take, and it's different than the rest of the movies in a lot of ways. And so, um, you know, but I think the first time I saw it was probably a year, maybe a year and a half ago. Wow, ago. that wow. is yeah. I, I'm stunned. like all the way through, and like David, I'd seen all the clips. Like I've seen clips from from the movie in in various places. You know, the pool scene is one that pops up a lot for sure. But you know, like I mean, the the kind of the the bus on the on the pillar and all that like there's a lot of iconic like some of those iconic images that that kind of pop up in different you know horror circles of like documentaries and clip reels and things and so i've seen that a bunch but i've never seen the whole movie through until more recently
0: wow okay great yeah. well uh weird yeah let's uh i'm looking forward to to hearing what you think about it i uh, i saw this let's see I, the first thing I remember seeing out of any nightmare on Elm street, you know, film at all was seeing the pool party clip when I was a youngster hanging out in movies, one in the local video store, you know, strolling up and down the aisle. And that's the movie that was playing. And that's the part that was playing. And I completely remember that so vividly. Um, and that was around when I think three was hitting the theater. Um, and I hadn't seen one yet, but, uh, and I remember the poster, the original poster, really, really well too. Where it's the, you know the Jesse uh, hugging the girl and like looking in the mirror, and you see Freddie. He sees Freddie in the reflection, um, mm-hmm. which I think is one of the better posters. But uh, I didn't see. I saw the movie a few years later when I picked up the first three on VHS, and uh, I saw those before I got into four and five, and and I didn't, you know. I didn't see the subtext. Like when I watched it in high school, like I, it didn't occur to me when I hit college it was like, Oh, Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> like <laughs> there is something else entirely going on here. But, and I think that was when that big DVD set came out. That was a pretty amazing box set of all the uh, Nightmare on Elm street movies. But um, yeah, so I, I'm, you know, a somewhat of a veteran of it, I guess. Uh, I, I hate to say that that makes me a, uh, <laughs> this one is an old viewing for me but it's true. All right, before we get into, you know, the big elephant in the room and and what we're kind of dancing around, let's just talk about how this movie got made and and what happened when Nightmare 1 uh was released and how big of a, you know, film that that was. I mean, EK, what do you, what do you think about, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise in general? You're a big a big horror fan, so where does that franchise kind of rate for you? Is that up high or do you put a lot of things ahead of it?
1: No, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know who I'll offend with this, but I'm going to, that'll be my, my top franchise of kind of 80s horror. You know, you've got, I mean, even though Texas Chainsaw started in the 70s, it really did come into its own as a franchise in the 80s. I love that, of course. I love Toby Hooper, but I think that um, Halloween, how could I not be a fan of that as well? Uh, Friday the 13th, of course, even Hellraiser and Chucky, but for me, absolutely right place, right time. Freddie was my guy. And I was obsessed with Nightmare on Elm Street, part one, part two, all the way through. I mean, I just loved them. And so it's always been that way. I always keep waiting for the moment I revisit and start to, if it starts to fall out of favor and it's gone the opposite direction where I just feel like they're just so classic at this point that any, any problems I would have with them is just nitpicking technically as a filmmaker and not as like <laughs> just a good fan that just enjoys watching fun 80s horror. These are really top tier. And, and I think Freddy has the makings of everything you want. He does get cheesy as the time goes on, but, you know, take it for what it's worth. So yeah, I'm going to be very biased to this because <laughs> I always have been and always will be kind of a a Nightmare on Elm Street fan for sure.
3: Or do you fall with the uh, the ghoulies? Are they are
1: they? (laughs) I do like the ghoulies. Yeah, I uh, ghoulies, two In particular, is a very fun one. We did that on the podcast. You did. And then ghoulies three. I mean, they go to college. They're expanding their minds. (laughs) That's right. You (laughs) know, so what else is a
0: ghoulie going to do? Yeah. Yeah.
1: What's a ghoulie to do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Freddie, uh, Freddie Krueger—the character changed so much between 1983 and 1989. I mean, that he became again. We talked about it last year. He became such a, an icon of the like pop culture and MTV, and he was just kind of this. He was like a horror version of Ronald McDonald. Like he was kind of everywhere. Okay. Um, and Robert well, Englund, was- of course, is so amazing.
2: Well, I mean, I've, just to ex, expand on that a little bit, John, like uh, Freddie was saturating the market at that time too, right? Like, I mean, basically from 84 to 89, those years that you were talking about, like you couldn't get a, like there was a new movie every year. And then for three of those years, there was the MTV, I think it was MTV, the, sh- the show, right? Like Freddie's yeah. Nightmares. So it's yeah. just like, he was everywhere. Like he was hugely popular. Yeah, and I remember him just making a lot of appearances
0: too, you know, like oh, yeah. publicity things left and right and tie-ins where he was just he well just and dark. I
2: I don't know, I don't know about where you guys were, but where I grew up in Houston, we had Astro World, and Astro World at Halloween would do fright their Halloween fright nights, and their big theme was always Freddy's nightmares. Like that's what it was. And they had Freddy's running around the theme park all over the place and like did fright shows and all sorts of different, different things, all Freddy based. Wow.
1: I would say the reason why I had such a bias, uh, nightmare on Elm street is because all the other franchises were straight up slashers, right? You had Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees and all these, and they, even Leatherface, they just, they terrified me. I was way more afraid of Jason than I ever was of Freddy in real life, like when I'd go camping, but you knew what you were in for. It was a killer on the loose and he'd slash you and you'd die. Whereas with Freddy, it had this element of surrealism and the the fantasy world. And so I felt like every film, you could go into another dreamlike state, literally, And that was for me personally with maybe a a more vivid imagination, way more appealing movie to movie than just another slasher in the woods or another slasher out in Texas or, or whatever, not to take anything away from those films, but there's, I think that's the direct reason why Freddie for me uh, stood out was that there was just so much more to work with than your basic formula.
2: Well, and he had a personality, you know, like all those other characters are looming you know, forces that, that are certainly not to be uh, trifled with, but like Freddy, you know, he'll chase you down in your dreams and he's gonna be dark and sarcastic and quick-witted and, and, and sharp-tongued the entire time doing it. I mean, I mm-hmm. still, I think to this day, like a lot of my sense of humor and, and dark kind of uh, uh, humor that I enjoy comes directly from seeing Freddy Krueger movies in that during that time of my life you know i mean Mm -hmm. because it was absolutely like you know in those formative years of my childhood it all it's also why i walk around with a glove with knives on on (laughs) but i mean we won't talk about that just
0: on tuesdays that's all yeah Yeah, the uh, Freddie, Jason, and Michael Myers in the eighties were the the horror, you know, giants. They were sort of your Mount Rushmore of horror characters. Maybe maybe uh, Pinhead from Hellraiser would be the fourth, I guess, uh, or or you know, somewhere thereabouts. Maybe Leatherface, but uh, you know, they were what like Dracula and Wolfman and Frankenstein and the yep. Mummy were to the sure. Universal horror movies of the thirties. But F- Freddie stood out so so much further than those other guys because his his films and the whole concept of Freddy Krueger was so different and there was so much more creativity that you could you know inject into it and these films could be you know changed so much compared to you know I think there's a limitation with with Jason and Michael Myers and and they even push those boundaries pretty far as we've discussed and gotten into those films but um you know, there's a lot you can do uh, and there's so much room for sort of growth with Freddie's character. And and yeah, like the, the it's interesting to see how they took him sort of out of the straight horror category and made him much more of a comedy sort of like horror comedy kind of role. And it was much more about I, I think you were kind of rooting for him and how how what creative way is he going to wipe out all these teenagers and you care less and less as it goes on? Like, especially when you get to five and six, like I, those got those those kids can't get out of there fast enough. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, back when we, when we are transitioning from one to two, there's still, you know, there wasn't a, a creative pattern really in place yet, regardless of how successful the first film was and what it did for Wes Craven's career. Uh, there it didn't seem like new line really had a game plan that was really set in stone and going into the second movie
1: yeah i would say that maybe they weren't prepared for the cultural wave that was going to come from this which they did exactly what you're supposed to right follow it up right away don't waste any time and that's That can be a good and bad thing. You know, sometimes when you follow it up, you strike while the iron's hot, like is uh, the case with Friday the 13th. I mean, there was literally, they basically were every single year of the eighties minus maybe one year, there's a film coming out for better or for worse, but also had they have not done that, they would have lost their audience. So it makes sense, but you run the risk of altering the the character that became so beloved um, a little too quickly. That's where I think two is actually the most fascinating because I, I honestly think Freddie is everything rides on part two. Like if they would have really dropped the ball on two, there wouldn't have been a part three. So clearly they didn't drop the ball. I mean, people go back and have revisionist history, but you know, we get after two, probably in my opinion, the two best in the entire franchise and it's directly because two succeeded. So that could have gone horribly wrong.
2: Yeah. But I think there's like, there's kind of a counter thought to that. Right. Like I think, so here's kind of part two to me is like a, is a pretty big departure away from like what made the first one and the third and fourth one scary. Right. And I feel like box office wise, like money wise, it did make money and it made sense like to, to make a third one because they figured they could probably do that. But I think critically, like it was kind of, a little bit panned. And and I think in retrospect, when you look at it, like for me, just to get into it, like the thing that makes me not like this movie as much as, as the others in the franchise is about the fact that they're not letting Freddy work in your dreams. Like they're trying to make it more a possession movie. And I feel like that's not a formula that really works with this character because then it just kind of makes him more like those other villains right like the terrifying thing like like jason and like michael myers you know like you're bringing him into the the real world where honestly like he's a little scrawny dude with a knife on his hand and yeah that's terrifying for sure but like it's not as scary as a guy who can manipulate your dreams and chase you down no matter what you do Mm -hmm. you know and i feel like that for me is what really works well and sets the first one up to be as popular as it is And I think to your point, like the third and fourth one really embraced that. And like by embracing it, like they're going back to the things that made the first one great and they're evolving and, you know, his character, like, you know, obviously Robert England is getting more um, uh, comfortable and in kind of, you know, really like starting to own the character in in a different way and give it its own, like, and kind of an uh, evolved uh, his expressions and everything, you know, like it all just kind of builds off that. But the second one to me is very much like out of the norm. And I just feel like ultimately is not nearly as strong uh, as, as you know, like of the, of the first four movies, it's certainly, I think, the weakest because they were making those kind of changes. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that they were trying to put it together as quickly as possible, didn't have a great idea and wanted to go for it. But you know, I think ultimately the reason three gets made is because it it did make money, the second one. But I think it's kind of a weak entry from a Freddy Krueger franchise kind of perspective. Now, like, st- I know we're going to get into this a little bit later, but standalone, like, it's a much different, like, there's a much different kind of perception to be had on it and what it means for, like, cinema history and everything but Mm -hmm. like as a part of the franchise like um i like i just don't it's it's probably my least favorite of them because i think that it departs itself way too much from what makes freddy krueger kind of spectacular
0: yeah that that's an that's a excellent point brent that you're taking the rules that you kind of set up in the first movie and what how freddy operates and and what the whole you know, context is, and you're changing it here without really explaining anything. They're just, it's Freddy's just operating differently. It's like you said, it is much more of a possession movie than, uh, you know, we see a few dreams, but not in the same way that we did in the first movie. And, and that's not really his, his plan of attack here, but it's it, there's a different level of scary
3: when he his, he's got long arms and he's chasing you down an alley mm-hmm. or oh, then yeah. then when he's standing next to a vase and he smashes it against the wall he did a lot of like smashing of stuff in the real world <laughs> like ooh, oh no
0: not that breaking plate. stuff
3: <laughs> you know i mean then he i mean he did get some legitimate murders but obviously like they're just like the only interesting kill is with the coach, right? I mean, other you know, pretty much other than yeah. I mean, Grady's I Rady, Grady's yeah. death is pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True. But, true. True. But yeah. Um, but like that's the th- I mean, so yeah, it's like it's he's just this he's just this th- threatening presence, and then he finally yeah he's I, I get the point of what they're trying to do. It's, it seems to make sense. Like yeah, make him make him make him real if he can become real and take you over you know then then he's even but he really isn't that scary (laughs) he's just he's just he doesn't have any powers well he does right but he's he's walking through walls and stuff and disappearing but he's
0: just smashing stuff it's yeah it's scary when someone is smashing plates and and my grandmother's (laughs) vase in front of me I I get scared yeah David you've done it in my house and and you saw it happen it was not pretty
1: (laughs) yeah of course (laughs) You know what I will say about him, though, is that I agree with everything. This is for me, too. This is probably the weakest entry just because uh, I 100 percent agree. They they tried something different. Good for them. uh, And it didn't quite work. I mean, with Friday the 13th, they tried something different by making a different killer and it worked beautifully. So it's (laughs) worth a shot. Um, But with with this one. The, the constant for me and why I still appreciate it in the in the grand scheme of the whole franchise is he's still menacing. Even, okay, take, a, take away the scene of him pushing the plate and stuff. But when he pulls back his, his head and says, you know, you've got the body and I've got the brain as a child who was watching it as it was coming out, that was terrifying. It's dark, the, the, the actual cinematography. It's very dark and it's very yeah. creepy. And he was still at this point, an incredibly menacing and creepy Freddy Krueger. I still didn't think he was goofy or funny at this point. Like, so when I watch it, I still get a little bit of that old school Freddy from part one, Mm -hmm. even though they're changing the way in which he operates in the world. um, I do like that. They haven't quite gone full, like stand up yet, you know, with him. So that's where two will always still get a watch from me every time.
2: Yeah. That's a great point. I mean he you're right. he is absolutely still dark and menacing and to your point, the way that he's lit and just like composed in shots like absolutely for
0: sure. Well there's not a lot of I, I think you definitely see Freddie in close up more in this movie than you do in the first one because the first one you don't see him almost at all. but by the in the third one that's where you get fully lit you know views of but this one is still kind of riding that line of you know we're not quite seeing him all the way i think there's a few shots where you you do get a look at him but um it's not all the way there yet yep and uh yeah i mean i think there's moments too there's there's maybe not the entire scene but that you know moment when the you know the bus uh the bus gets, you know, hijacked, Freddie hijacks the bus. And I guess, which is in Jesse's dream, that moment of like, Oh, the, this bus isn't stopping, you know, this is what, what's happened. Like just that part of the scene, albeit it's short, like that's a moment of terror. You know, that's, yeah. I, I think we have a few of those throughout the movie and definitely the pool party scene, at least part of it. Um, Some of that's, I, you know, some of these movies, I get so distracted by the 80s-ness of it. And oh, the, yeah. The, the bad acting. by <laughs> the, the, the extras, yeah. 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 Like, oh. I can't see anything but that.
1: Yeah. Did you guys, I have a question about this, because uh, being that it's, it's a mixed bag of people growing up with this and people seeing it recently, did you guys ride the bus as children? Because I did. I lived out of town. Yeah. So this resonated big time with yeah. me. And I would say this was probably the scariest aspect of part two for me was I was riding the bus as a child at that time yep. and I was terrified of my bus driver. He was a mean guy already. So after I saw this, I couldn't unsee it or unfeel it. And I used to always have a little bit of terror in the back of me that what if the bus driver just kept driving and didn't yeah. drop me off with my parents. So this yeah. worked for me.
0: Yeah. My my stop was like, I think the third to last stop on the bus route too. So Definitely yeah. had that same thought. Of like, yeah, and I lived
1: in the desert, so I mean, that's
2: it's <laughs> where I grew up. Right yeah, yeah. I I hadn't seen the movie in its in 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 its entirety at the time when I was riding a bus, but I I can I can I can safely bet that I would have been pretty terrified had I seen it all the way through, and the bus would skip a stop. <laughs> I need you,
0: Jesse. We got special work to do here you and me. going back just to the to the script here so when we're when they're transitioning to the second movie they you know surprisingly they don't go to West craven immediately or maybe they did and he turned it down quickly uh to write the second movie uh, I, and I don't remember i know he what was the, I, i'm trying to remember off the top of my head what he did right after net random street but obviously he he stayed in the horror genre but i think didn't want to necessarily dive right into the sequels. Um, he uh, They hire a writer or one of the writers uh, pitching was a writer named Leslie Bohem, who wrote the whole uh, pregnancy storyline, which we would later see come to fruition in Nightmare on Elm Street part five. But her pitch was that Freddie, uh, that I think Nancy is now pregnant and Freddie is trying to possess the baby and <laughs> attack from, from that angle, which uh, Sarah Risher, who was one of the the heads of New Line uh, Cinema, was pregnant at the time and was like super offended at that storyline. So (laughs) nixed that. And then they they went with a writer by the name of David Chaskin, who had the script that we uh, eventually saw. And I think Wes Craven was in play to possibly just direct and had a lot of creative issues with this script. I think for the same reasons that we're saying that, Hey, we're we're breaking Freddie's rules here. Why are we doing that? So he really splits from the franchise entirely. Although he has a a bit of involvement in part three, I think, Um, I think a story credit, and then he doesn't come back till part seven. He's just credited as characters created by, and that's it. So he splits with Bob Shea uh, who's sort of spearheading the creative involvement because this it's this franchise that really created new line cinema or or you know made that company so uh, they have you know lord of the rings can thank nightmare on elm street for its existence <laughs> so you've got the But let's talk about. All right, let let's start heading towards uh, the big area that we're we're going to talk about here, which is what's really going on in this movie. What is the subtext and, um, you know, kind of parallel storyline that's going on here? So, uh, I think most people. I'm going to assume most people listening to this have seen the movie and are familiar with the 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 gay subtext to to uh, this character, to Jesse's character of of this sort of paralleling Freddie representing you know homosexuality and him coming to to grips with that and coming out of the closet and it's his whole internal struggle with that which takes this movie into an entirely different realm than i think most horror movies and definitely every other one from in in this franchise what what are you guys what was your first when did you pick up on that side of the movie his first
2: scream. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, kind of like, honestly, like that was kind of the first sort of indication. And then it had to be the, the pop gun dancing. Like that was the next. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kind of over the top for me. I was like, man, I just, I don't know how you can't pick it up, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, it seems kind of, I mean, maybe it's being, almost 35 years after the fact now. And just, you know, like how far as a culture we've, we've come, but like, this seems like overtly obvious to me that, that, that that's what's intended, but, you know, back in 85, like maybe, maybe it wasn't as obvious. Maybe it wasn't, you know, like, I mean, the gay community was still pretty, you know, like hidden at that time or, or, you know, starting to come out, you know, more openly, but, but, you know, there was a lot going on in 85 that Mm -hmm. made it hard with, with kind of terrible, like, you know, PR on AIDS and everything that was happening. So, you know, but it seems to me now watching it just a year and a half ago for the first time, like that, there's no question that, you know, this is kind of, I would assume one of the first like mainstream uh, gay like cinema movies put out there, at least, at least for sure in the horror genre, you know? So Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that's true or a factual or not, but it seems like like in 85, it it would have to be one of the front runners.
1: Yeah. What I would say is um, just from somebody who watched it when it, when it was still coming out, like back in the eighties, of course, I didn't pick up on that, A, because I was a kid and be, because I just accepted it as a Freddy movie. I thought he was more like terrorizing kids in a different way. Mm-hmm. I did find like the shower scene and stuff very terrifying, made me not want to shower in gym class when I was a little older because I was just like, this is a way to kind of just be sadistic towards towards kids, which is what Freddy has always done. So I didn't really kind of put that together. Also, keep in mind, you know, when when people watch it later, you know, with modern eyes and they go, How could you not know? Well, I also didn't know Rob Halford was gay and Judas Priest. And I didn't know Freddie Mercury was gay and queen. I just thought they were very like right. showmen. They were very flamboyant. So mm-hmm. in the 80s, there was a lot of excess and over-the-top kind of showmanship. And I think that stuff wasn't as obvious as it is right now or we didn't look at it with that intent to be like, I wonder if mm-hmm. you just kind of accepted it. And that was just part of 80s culture is everybody was wearing makeup. Everybody was wearing these big crazy clothes and big hair and hairspray. And it didn't matter what orientation they were. So it took me years and years till I finally heard this reading on it. And I, had, I grew up with this film. I've seen it more times than I can remember. The problem is when you see a film the first time as a kid, each time you rewatch it, you're not looking for a new reading on it. You're just now watching it again because you already know what to expect. So I never had the intention of going, I wonder if there's more below the surface with Nightmare Mm -hmm. Elm Street Part Mm -hmm. 2 until I found out about it. And I'm like, what in the world are they even talking about? Then you watch it. And yeah, it's no different than watching a live video of Queen. Like, duh. But I just had not I would have never even thought it without right. being prompted to because I just accepted it into, you know, the history of cinema and moved on with my life. And so maybe that's part of the reading for half the the viewers, too, is some of us yeah. just we'd kind of moved on. Cool. Part two came out and uh, we hadn't got caught up on it. And, you know, so that's been it's been an interesting way to see this film evolve and stand out from the rest of the franchise when normally it would have been swallowed up and forgotten in the rest of the franchise.
0: Yeah. And in 1985, the, the AIDS epidemic is in full swing. Yeah. I mean, it's huge and that's huge news. And you know, a lot of these, these, you know, actors and musicians, they they weren't out, like they, they weren't coming out that they were gay. So it was, it wasn't, I don't think we could have seen it from that perspective until, you know, years go by we look at it and, and sort of look back at it. I mean, when, when I was in college, like I was saying, was the first time that it, it dawned on me. And then in the documentary that's on that DVD set, they address it. And that was the first, like, oh my God, yeah. Like, of course, now it makes sense why this movie, something is just off about it. So yeah, it's 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 so, it, it makes this one stand out so much more than the others just because there's a whole other layer that none of the other movies have. I mean, the first one maybe is, but even that's so different. So I don't know, yeah. David, what, what, what do you think? Did you, uh, did you pick up on that right away? <laughs> yeah. I mean,
3: it, in terms of a <laughs> modern audience, being in a modern audience and and looking at this uh, for the first time, I mean, it's, it's very clear that this movie is is screaming a lot lots of information that literally are are very obvious for for any modern audience now um and i i I thought that was kind of bold like it was it's it's i thought yeah i just um and I, i have to give them credit for just like having that having the to couch like the whole storyline in a in that horror in the horror genre i mean it's just it's such a it's kind of a brilliant take like just to to do it that way and then and it is that thing of like yeah for a non for for an audience to like just kind of glaze over it like yeah like you said eric Eric, you the uh uh the showmanship of of like you know gay performers and everything it's like you kind of just accept what you're seeing and then like you don't really want to know more because you, you don't really care you're you're just caring about the performance or you know like the the flamboyance and the outrageousness so like him dancing and 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 goofing around in his room it's like it's just kind of a funny scene like it's just it's just just kind of who he is you know uh so I, you know it's stuff like that it, it, but it's really you know and it's i guess like you know but then his character and uh, they he falls in love with uh, uh, what's her face right? Um, mm-hmm. Lisa. What's her name? Lisa. Lisa. So they love each other, right? But that isn't. But but also like in a modern arena, it's like it doesn't matter. He's he's not gay. It's a, it's a que- it's he's he's pro- he's queer. Like you know, so he's not just mm-hmm. specifically gay with the reading of that subtext. But you can you can go there. But it's like you know, he's just he can love whoever he wants to, <laughs> you know. Um so he's. It's, yeah I don't know so I thought I thought it was kind of bold but I think well, it's a, I, I, go, oh, ahead. go ahead
1: I think it's a little problematic though when trying to learn about it in in current times because we've come so far as a society that when I found out this reading of like oh did you know this is the gay one this is the gay movie I was like, okay, cool. Like, I I guess, you know, we're in a time now where we embrace it, we accept it. We're not like shocked or horrified by it or anything like that. So I try and go back and go, well, this must've been a little jarring for an audience at the time had they picked up on it. But it kind of loses its potency in modern times because we've come so far that to go, did you know that this movie has a gay subtext? Um, okay, cool. Like, that's great. Let's watch it. You know, I don't, so it's really hard because I do see why people want to really dissect it and give it a lot of attention, but they're kind of doing it after the fact. Like they kind of missed the opportunity and now they're going back and trying to correct it. But had they have maybe been this proactive when it first came out, it would have been more important in the history of cinema now we're trying to kind of insert its its importance after the fact so it's it's a little problematic unfortunately it's kind of like we we didn't see it when it was right in front of us
2: yeah i mean that's a great i think that's a great great point is that yeah because i mean because when it came out like i think people did pick up on it you know i don't think it was completely lost on on people but when the filmmakers were asked about it they denied it right mm-hmm. like right. it could have been problem. a problem it could have been a bold brave like statement like a yep. move you know but it wasn't like they they shied away from it and they refused to to acknowledge it and so then what happens like it does it it loses all its potency for what it could have could have been you know and it's and again like now Thirty-five years later, like it—it it, it certainly has solidified itself as a cult kind of classic mm-hmm. uh, in in that regard. But like you're right, like I think it absolutely missed its its opportunity to to be something even bigger than than just kind of a, a kind of a after you know like a oh yeah that's that was that was cool cult classic
1: <laughs> yeah
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah but. It's hard to like, you know, to put your flag out there and in 1985 and say, yeah, this is a big gay horror story. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, this is yeah. what we're trying to say. We're trying to show you the 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 difficulty of just being different um, in this way uh, and all of that. You know, different from like the mainstream. Um, and you know, yeah, maybe. And the, I I didn't see the documentary about it and all that, but I just I can imagine you know denying it to let the art just stand on its own. You know that that would probably be a a, def, a defense so that they're not just some the, the gay you know the gay filmmakers you know what i mean like yeah. they want to stay in well, the mainstream you know
2: what's more in, what an, another unfortunate like since you mentioned the documentary we're talking about scream queen right which is a documentary uh, yeah. that mark patton who plays the lead character in uh produced kind of telling his story about what happened to him in his life after like post Nightmare on Elm Street, too, because everybody was denying that it was that it was, you know, a, kind of a homoerotic movie and that it was gay cinema. And, you know, like he was kind of he ended up getting kind of put out there as the the face of that. And, you know, like it really at the time, like he was trying to be, you know, like a, an actor in Hollywood and was being told to to basically stay in the closet. And he was terrified of being typecast as the gay man and it like this particular movie and the denial of the other filmmakers coming clean and saying what they were doing like in a lot of ways really ruined this dude's life for a for an extended period of time like I mean he yeah. he was uh you know like had a bunch of uh you know depression and mental illnesses that he had to work through and and just you know having to take on the weight and and carry you know kind of shoulder the responsibility of of that perception of the movie solely on himself as a young uh you know trying to be successful actor in hollywood in the 80s during you know the the rampant like uh hiv like um pr that was going on like all the all the information that was being spread about about AIDS and HIV. And so like the documentary that you mentioned, David is, is really interesting. I felt because it like kind of tells his perspective on that, but Mm. I mean, it's a, you know, like this movie was, again, there's a lot of different kind of layers to it. And that one, once I finally saw it, like, I was like, man, this movie, once I saw Nightmare on Elm Street too, it sent me down a rabbit hole, like looking into different articles and trying to read more about what was going on. And, you know, you run into this documentary and the documentary just kind of lays it all out there. And like, basically the writer, uh, David Chaskin, Chaskin. yeah, like denied it and still hasn't really come clean with it, but there's a much more like widely understanding and accepted, like, um, you know, idea that it was intentionally kind of made this way. And it's, you know, Finally, the actor Mark Patton has been able to kind of like come to terms and and really start to take what take what credit he deserves. But I mean, for a long time, it was seems like it was a terrible, terrible burden for him to have to 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 shoulder.
0: the The fact that David Chaskin and Jack Shoulder, the director, denied that 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 was you know ha- was anything that was going on in this movie is is shocking and appalling and like that's offensive to me <laughs> like uh, like how could you watch this movie and completely deny that ha- that has any part in it at all I mean well, it's I, in the script I, uh, exactly like and he's and David Chaskins kind of sort of like admitted it that uh, it, it may have been some kind of commentary on the the AIDS epidemic but like that's not just it. There's a lot more that uh, that has to be intentional. And it's insulting that that they can like Jack Shoulder to this day denies it. Like, I, I just don't understand that. And poor Mark Patton, his career was ruined by it. And, you know, this is a a time period where actors are not coming out. They're staying in the closet. You're, you're dealing with, you know, Rock Hudson, who's you know, spent his entire career, Montgomery Clift, you know, I mean, there's even rumors of James Dean and, and, you know, a lot of actors from that time period who are starting to get outed by things like the national Enquirer and exposed that they've got HIV or, or, or whatever. And, um, you know, it, this poor kid who's just starting his career. He's just come off a Robert Altman movie, uh, come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean. And, You know, his career could be on the upswing. This should be his big break. This is a a huge movie and and it's all over partially because of that, you know, and he ended up taking the heat for it. Like he's the one I think that took all the heat for years of this movie being different than the others.
1: To an extent, it's a little complicated, though, because. He also simultaneously was dealing on a personal level with his partner, got AIDS and died, and then he got AIDS. And so he ran away from everything. He just said, I'm out. He went to Mexico. So I'm a, I'm a little conflicted, to be totally honest, about the documentary because it sends mixed signals with him saying he burdened all the, you know, he, he shouldered all the burden but then him also saying he was unaware of the readings of this film and the hatred that was on the internet until he was just recently, you know, within the last few years, contacted, then he looked into it, he googled it, and then he found out all of this and he realized, I need to set the record straight. So it's a little conflicting because he presents it as though he ran away and he's been tormented by it for years and years and been on the receiving end of hate mail, but nobody even knew where he was living this whole time. So you have to always kind of see things from both perspectives. And I think that he is also um, using this to his advantage to be able to reclaim his stardom, to be able to get back out there and make a name for himself, control the narrative. I don't blame him for that. And it's very complicated because in that documentary, there are moments like when he is talking to Jack, the director, and they're talking about like, how could you not know you went to the biggest gay bar in the city? And Jack says, oh, was that a gay bar? And you can tell. And the other actor calls him out right there in the spot. And he says, don't try and act like you didn't know that. And so still to this day, like 30 years later, this this dynamic is still happening where one camp is afraid to just come out and go, yeah, sure, that's what it was. Cool, let's embrace it. And the other is going, you're playing stupid. And so that's what makes this film so complicated is it's Mm -hmm. not... It's not just a movie anymore. It's about a larger conversation and the social context of, of what we're willing to accept or deny and who we're going to put that burden on. And so it's, uh, it makes every character in this story in real life uh, very complex. And you don't yeah. quite know what their intentions are. You don't know what their end game is. But they've all gone through this shared experience with very different opinions.
2: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: And there's so much
0: in the specific dialogue in this movie that, you know, when, when Lisa is coaching him to, to hide it and fight it and, you know, like deny it basically, like stay in the closet like don't don't talk about it like she says multiple times like we're not going to talk about it we're not, you know yeah uh, it's it's just it's really amazing and the fact that that mark patton is like you said just it's such a parallel story of what's really going on with him behind the scenes just gives such a deeper value to this movie um there's really so much to it, it it's god it, the more we talk about it this one is just so much more fascinating than the other elm street movies just for for this what's really going on here and and those movies are believe me they're all fascinating for their own reasons but <laughs> <laughs> this just has so much but they're truth surface in- level this exactly. one goes
2: this one's so much deeper with so many different levels of complexity you yeah. know and and it, exactly right like that's what makes this one so compelling and so you know for me like as a standalone it's extremely fascinating and compelling and is great but as uh entry into the friday or sorry the nightmare franchise franchise you know it's uh again i go back to it being kind of weaker you know from a from a freddy Krueger film experience you know and outside of freddy Krueger film experience it's a whole different Mm ballgame yeah
1: yeah i would say that the The thing, too, is that uh, it's like a movie within a movie, and then you have the movie that keeps playing out still to this day. Right. And that's the complication is, you know, this guy, Mark, wanted to be a big-time movie star, and he got his big break, and he got what he wanted, and then uh, Hollywood came down on him in a way that was not uh, what he wanted, and he found the the hard end of that, of trying to, to live through that, and then put all of his blame for his kind of losing his career on this, but then ironically, like the reason why he is now back in the limelight and has a career is because of this movie. So it's it's really interesting to see, yeah, where he has basically reclaimed it and retooled it to his advantage. Whereas for the bulk of his career, it was a disadvantage. And I think that that says something really bizarre too, is like, how can you take an entire movie that already has like existed for decades and go, well, actually it's my movie. He even says that in the documentary. One time he says, it's my movie. It's my creation. And yeah. I was like, Whoa, he just completely took it back. He took it over. And, um, and everybody's now kind of in his camp on it. And I think that that's the real story there. Mm-hmm. That's what makes this, just so bizarre there's just not a lot of this happening in other movies when we talk about them you know so uh, wow what a fascinating movie
0: I think there's some subtext to that in Rebel Without a Cause even with James Dean I think there's some of that going on in that movie but never really addressed like it is with this one Mm -hmm. so I guess we could say Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a much more fascinating film than Rebel Without a Cause
1: (laughs) yeah yeah, maybe not fascinating for the reasons that the filmmakers <laughs> intended, right, but right. it's become very fascinating over the years.
0: I, I wonder what movie Jack Shoulder thought that he was making. Like, if he didn't see this, like, what did he see? I mean, clearly, if you look at his body of work, I don't think it screams out
1: high quality.
0: So, yeah. um, you know, what does he, he did? Alone in the Dark, I think, was his first film. Yeah,
1: I actually really like that film, but that's... Right that's kind of about it he came out swinging early yeah. on
0: and then this and then kind of a lot of misses after that and yeah. i think he was a um if i remember correctly i think he was a francis ford coppola guy i think he kind of came up under coppola's wing as you know an assistant and and kind of under the learning tree there but i don't know i don't think he took a lot from that tree so um yeah
1: I did ask myself that, too, when I was re-watching it this time, and I was watching the actual shots that are on screen. (laughs) Like, how in the world could you have shot those scenes and and been that clueless? So, I mean, he was the director. And I did find that fascinating, that the whole narrative with the documentary, Screen Queen, was between Mark and the writer, David. Mm -hmm. But the actual person that should have been kind of in the mix there was Jack. Jack's the one that kind of silently backed out, like, Homer Simpson's going into the bushes <laughs> and just yeah. let the two of them deal with it. It's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the
0: gym scene with the, with Marshall Bell, who's great in this movie, Marshall Bell is yeah. one of like my favorite character actors from the eighties and nineties, you know, in a lot of the Paul Verhoeven movies. And he's just like the minute you see him, like, oh, that guy's mm-hmm. been in a million movies and he's always good. Um, Cueto, right? Quaito. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like how can you look that? And you're doing a close-up of his ass getting spanked with like, a towel while he's strapped up yeah, assuming I mean... the position, you know. Like, come on, what 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 are you doing? Yeah, and there's so much like everything with his character, like his diet, like he literally tells you know uh, Grady and Jesse to assume the position.
1: Assume the position.
0: You know, a lot of in that, that softball scene, like, what does Grady do to Jesse? He pants him, you know? Yeah. He, yeah. Like, while he's on his knees, he pulls his pants down. Um, you know, a lot of Grady's dialogue about wet dreams.
3: Hey, Grady, you remember your dreams? Only the wet ones.
0: You know, talking about the the gym teacher, uh, Coach Schneider, getting his rocks off, watching pretty boys like them. and
1: How much longer do you think he's going to keep us out here? it could be all night the guy gets his rocks off like this hangs around queer
2: s&m joints downtown he likes pretty boys like you uh,
0: you know there, there's 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 so much and especially like when you get to the relationship between i guess the uh the trio of of jesse lisa and and grady and what's going on there and that every time Lisa is making you know sexual advances uh, you know with Jesse his he's unable to do it and he runs away and and of course because Freddie is trying to take him over uh he runs away and where does he go straight to Grady's bedroom you know And, and Grady even says it like like she wants to sleep with you but you want to sleep with me
1: hey what are you doing the fuck you doing in my room I need you to let me stay here tonight. Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana. And you want to sleep with me.
0: And, and, you know, and then there's no acknowledgement of it. And uh, I I just don't, it it just baffles me of, of what Jack Shoulder thought he was doing when you're sitting on set and composing these shots and hearing this dialogue back. And then you're in an editing room putting it all together over and over and over. And it just never once occurs to you. It's shocking, shocking here at Recon Cinema Studios.
1: (laughs) Well,
2: seems impossible.
1: And it it comes through in the documentary. That was probably the most jarring part for me was when when Mark and Jack are having a one on one conversation. And when I think Jack's going to say one thing and he doubles down on the other thing, being like, look, it's been 30 years you got what you wanted, get over it. I was like blown away at that scene. And that's when his kind of intentions came forward. And I thought, this is who we're dealing with. This is the kind of person we're dealing with is he has no interest in learning the rest of the story or somebody's personal experience. He's just a movie maker. He just, he, he got his paycheck and he moved on. What's the mm-hmm. big deal? Like he's so out of touch and yeah. it really came across in that documentary and i'm sure that that was carefully edited however it didn't seem like it was that hard to edit i mean it was it was right there and so that's when we we talk about this and we say how could you not know well look at who was making the film and it seems pretty obvious yeah. you know that's the narrative that they wanted to put out there and they're yeah. going to keep it that way he's inside me he's inside me and he wants to take me again it's
3: it's got to be everything you've taken in uh, schneider the, the diary the glove he-
0: Owns me. I can't imagine that had Wes Craven stuck around and done this film, I this is not the movie he would have presented. No, no, no. I and and you know, I'm glad this movie got made because it brings up a lot of important issues, especially now you know, I think this is an important film in the grand scheme of things. Um it would have been interesting to see what what did Wes Craven want to do. I mean, I, clearly, I don't think he wanted to do anything. But if he was <laughs> if he was convinced to do a sequel, uh, what w- what would he do? And I think you would see what we ended up getting with part three, which we'll cover right. next year. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he does come back and sort of steer the ship back towards the first movie, mm-hmm. back towards yeah. the Freddie Staples and you know, what the Freddy Krueger gimmick really, really was, um, you know, it's also interesting the the Freddy and Jesse relationship here, like there's some darkly sort of, I guess, somewhat erotic, like body language between the two of
2: them. Yeah. I mean, there's the scene in the hallway where he's, you know, got his hand on his mouth. And I mean, it apparently was supposed to go be even kind of, more sexual, like more sexual than that. Yeah, he like, like
0: caresses his face, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting, but uh, Robert England also almost didn't make it into this movie.
1: <laughs> I didn't know oh,
0: that. Which yeah. was even all, all, like equally as shocking as what the movie was. Was you wait? You were gonna do it without Robert England? <laughs> like they they didn't. I think they didn't want to pay him. What he wanted, and yeah. they took an extra and just threw a rubber mask on him and the and the rest of the outfit, and uh, a disaster was awaiting them if they had continued on that road. There's, I think they realized pretty quick, though, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's one shot in the movie that remains of that person, and it's in the shower scene where it cuts you know, after uh, the coach is killed and it it cuts back to Freddie sort of walking through the shower towards the camera, like through the smoke. And you can see it's a completely different body language. It's like this kind of stiff, like wooden, you know, person with definitely not the same Freddie mask, but it's a brief shot. But you can tell when you know what you're looking for, like that is not Robert England at all.
1: Hmm. Well, we've seen that play out. <laughs> we've seen what happens when you make a Nightmare on Elm Street movie without oh, yeah. Robert England. Yeah, well, no bueno. Yeah, it's a train wreck.
0: I, I actually, um, truth be told, I just started watching uh, the the 2010 film for the first time. I made it about 15 minutes, and I was like, mm-hmm. "What is this movie?" Yeah. Like all yeah. of these remakes, they just they do it. They're they're unnecessary, first of all, and second they are just so different than what the what made the original special and the pacing is different and it, it's just entirely different movie and uh i was I, i'm gonna try and finish it but i got about 15 in and i was like
2: nah it's gonna be a while <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I'm, I'm going back to uh tom Selleck's runaway or, or something like that so. <laughs> there you go <laughs> but um yeah. Interesting. Obviously a lot to uh, discuss with this one. Uh, I really enjoyed the rest of the cast though. I mean, you know, it, this is uh, where we get to David's favorite segment of the show. Who's in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everybody else is, is great. I mean, of course, Robert England, but uh, Robert Rustler is Grady and um, Kim Myers as Lisa is really doing a good job in those roles Clue Gulliger uh, as as uh, Jesse's dad and Hope Lang as his mother. Um, Clue was in uh, we talked about him previously in Return of the Living Dead, which was back in year one for us, uh, which you can hear in the archives at Um, but also he was in the last picture show. Like He's a quality actor so is Hope Lang and uh, Robert Russell is coming off of weird science and you know he mm-hmm. was floating around all over in the 80s and I, I think it's a a good dynamic between all those actors. It's uh, they they definitely had that going for them for sure.
1: The actress who played Lisa—that was her first role, I think. I think that's her first feature. Wow, and she's great. I really liked her yeah. in it. That's another thing about part two is like, so I don't know if this is just my personal opinion. Growing up with it, is it's been kind of just overkill on the the readings of it now with the subtext and the, you know, everything else, but as just a horror movie, it's still, it's a easy watch. It's a good movie. And so, yeah, it's fun to to talk about all this and everything that happened afterwards and what was happening below the surface, but also just as a horror fan, like part two is pretty cool. It's got some really great special effects, some practical effects, some great body horror in it, Mm -hmm. uh, solid acting. The other thing we talked about what makes, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street series stand out from other slashers of the time and stuff is the score. The scores are always good on Nightmare films, you know? And they're different. They're different. I'm not taking away anything from from Harry with doing Friday the 13th or from Christopher Young doing Hellraiser or anything like that. But man, the scores film to film are always they're dreamlike. They're weird. They're more experimental. They're fun. And so this whole film is still a really solid film um, regardless of the other readings of it, just take it for what it is. It's probably the weakest of all of them, but it doesn't mean that that's a bad. Keep in mind, if the bar is already really high, to be the weak one of a really high franchise means you're probably still a pretty decent film overall. You know. Yeah. Well, well, these
0: had such high production value. I mean, when you look at the Nightmare movies, all of them, the Halloween movies, pretty much all of them, and the Friday the 13th movies, they you know, they at least had filmmakers who knew what they were doing. When you compare to a lot of 80s horror movies, like, there's just, it's sloppy, there's mistakes all over, there's uh, you know, almost like you're watching half a gag reel that made it into the movie, but, and and horror effects that are just very cheap looking, and these are, these are high quality stuff going here, so it, it did have a lot working for it. I don't know, this one, for me, I think on all levels, like, this one I enjoy more than Freddy's dead from part six. I enjoy it more than part five. Yeah. Um, you know, three and four, I'm not sure about, but this is, uh, they kind of all are float around the same area for me personally. And then now I've got a lot of love for seven kind of coming back, uh, looking at it more of this kind of self-reflexive thing, but that's when Wes Craven gets back involved Mm -hmm. what, new nightmare is sort of a really more of a setup for scream than yeah, yeah. It, it is almost a nightmare movie, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I actually enjoy this movie on, on a lot of levels. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think like Brent said, it's, it's especially as a standalone film, like it's solid. Like there's, there's a lot there.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Agreed. I agreed. I, I enjoy, I enjoy it on its own, uh, for what it is. Uh, for, for, for yeah all those elements I mean I think yeah I think it, the cast is really good like they're they're starting like these horror movies are starting to put real 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 people here <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're,
2: they're great solid performances for sure yeah. throughout. So it's
3: um so I felt it I felt very engaged by the whole thing at, at all times um with
0: with everyone on screen so we've got John Saxon in the first movie so you need somebody of that caliber and and clue is is a good you know, sort of replacement actor for that role.
1: Yeah. who's a classic in the, in the horror community. He's a, he's an icon, you know, icon. he's has been in everything. We covered him. I think the last one we ever covered him in was uh, the uninvited, which was, or uninvited, which is about a killer mutant cat that lives inside of another cat and comes out and kills people on a cruise ship. <laughs> he's he's great in that too. So yeah, of course I'm going to love seeing him in that, you know, as well. So yeah, I, I totally agree. This, When I say that I think it's the weakest of the franchise, I don't mean that it's um, my least favorite to watch. I just think that maybe like, uh, you know, like Brent said, it's it's kind of kind of ventures off a little too far the the bus goes a little too far into the desert on this one. (laughs) Um, But that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you've got a lot to live up to when you've got seven plus films out there, you know, so and a TV series and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Overall, great film. I really enjoy this film. I always have. I always will. You are all my children
2: now. Well, and I think you touched on it earlier in the in the podcast where you talk about, you know, like I think all these great horror franchises have installments that, you know, branch out in in different like strange directions at times, you know, and uh, you know, but for the most part, they all kind of come back to that that sort of formula that that makes them end up being kind of the classic franchises that everybody really appreciates. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, what what are, what are we talking about? So if we're talking about the other franchises, so Nightmare 2 is the one that strays off the path. We've got, we just recently covered Friday the 13th Part 5, A New Beginning. <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah. that, that would be the one that veers off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then would we say, uh, love it or hate it, Halloween 3 would be,
1: right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's the one that made everybody kind of check out or check in, you know, because that's when they were developing this whole idea of it being more of an anthology. Mm -hmm. I think... um, obviously Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two took everybody by surprise because it became a comedy. (laughs) Yeah. I I personally think it's a brilliant film. I love it too. Yeah. Um, And then even with uh, Hellraiser, you know, I would say part four bloodlines when they go into space and they're doing all these alternate time travels and stuff, that's where you're starting to, to test the waters of what your audience will stay with you on. I think with nightmare, they did it right away. I mean, by part two, it's like, let's see what happens. Um, but they, I agree. They came, they came back really strong with three. I'm a four guy. I'll be totally blunt. Like that's my, yeah. that's my film. That's the I one that I had four. on tape and I, um, I had it on tape. So it was there for me to watch anytime I wanted yep. and you Same better believe here. I Same watched story, it man. all the time. So uh, I don't know if it's the best one, but it's my favorite one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's cool to watch these franchises grow and try different things. You've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Sometimes they make a good dish. <laughs> sometimes they don't. Yeah. But, you know, can't serve the same thing every time. And
0: yeah. you've got so many different filmmakers involved in all of these that it keeps changing. Very rarely do you have the same person making one movie into the next. Into the, It's never like one person's baby, you know? It starts that way and then it changes and then sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't.
1: Yeah, the director on part six, uh, she went on while she was on set filming part six, got the script for Tank Girl and then went on to do Tank Girl. I mean, that's how different that career is. So, yeah, I mean, you got really dynamic people getting involved in these franchises.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she, Rachel Talele, was uh, an AD who worked, I think, at least on four and five. So Mm -hmm. she was sort of uh, like what happened in the james bond world of like you know some of the same crew behind the scenes is the same and doing movie after movie and kind of moving up the ranks so mm-hmm. um but you know we'll talk about freddy's dead yeah. uh, another <laughs> another year but <laughs> um let's talk a little uh let's talk a little box office a little box office glory and see how this one did uh financially speaking Freddy's Revenge comes out November 1st, 1985. Uh, it had a $3 million budget and it debuts number four uh, against Death Wish 3 and To Live and Die in L.A. Now, this one lands uh-huh. right right between. So, yeah, coming up against uh, Death Wish, that's a little tough. But, um, you know, I don't think that franchise was what it was in the 70s. Uh and it lands right between Jagged Edge and the 18th week of Back to the Future. So wow. <laughs> just to put it in perspective. Back wow. to the Future was a
2: juggernaut, though. Yeah. 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 For
0: sure. Well, it's the number one movie of 85, right? Pretty sure.
2: Yeah. yeah. I think we've checked that before. I think that's right.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll keep checking it <laughs> every time.
2: Every time. Can we confirm? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it ends up doing okay. I've seen varied numbers. Uh, you know, worldwide totals of. I saw twenty-one million. I've also seen thirty million. I've so seen thirty. Yeah. Either way, that that's a good size hit. It's. I mean, they're making money. They're for sure. They're making a ton of money here and enough to. You know, I think people came to the theater based on obviously the ads and you're going to the movie for the the movies for the uh, film that came prior. So they're coming off the reputation of part one. And in good faith, they're coming to see part two. Uh, We've seen that, you know, throughout history that the success or lack thereof of one movie is going to greatly affect the next one or whether there will be a next one. So, yeah. Um, well, did
2: you say, sorry, I probably missed it completely, but you said, you know, their budget was 3 million. Yeah. And so they made, you know, 21 to 30 million off the 3 million. Which yeah. Is I great. mean, that's, that's, that's great. And that's
0: going to get another movie when already by 85, what are we, four, four movies, five movies deep in Friday the 13th and uh, at, at least three movies uh, deep with Halloween and, and whatever other franchises are out there. So I, I think the thought to make it a series was was definitely in their minds here. And, and luckily it did well enough to do that, that maybe creatively uh, they weren't all in agreement about what this was or that they wanted to continue Jesse's storyline. <laughs> maybe it's time to bring uh, Nancy back into the fold here.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll also say though, that the box office is only one aspect of the success of this. I'd say part two is when... Fred- Kruger really starts to become accepted on a wider scale for pop culture this is when you start to see mm-hmm. halloween costumes pop up and lunch pails and stuff like that and freddie is becoming something that's going to stay now and it's only going to grow and grow you know by three and four that's when he starts doing raps and stuff like that you know Absolutely. like but yeah but two is really uh, one of the legacies of part two is solidifying and not dying out you know like he's it's it's keeping Freddy at the forefront of you know the big ones and not um, just kind of fading into obscurity like so many other horrors that tried to sequel and failed. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's really part of the success of Part Two is is uh, pushing Freddy way more in the in the forefront of the horror world.
2: Yeah. Yeah. it Definitely uh, perpetuates and helps catapult him into pop culture from this point forward for sure.
0: Yeah, Freddy became such a huge part of the really the late 80s. And we're heading right in that direction. I think three is really where it starts, because three yeah. is just so quotable and so many memorable scenes. And they're writing that, di- you know, that dialogue really. Yeah, for it starts. And,
2: it starts the dream trilogy. you know. Exactly. So, yeah. So uh,
0: every good, is, every, every great horror franchise has a trilogy. So, yeah. Is that right? I don't know
2: yeah. <laughs> Let's get one of the interns to check on that one Yeah research <laughs> yeah. that
0: um, Yeah but uh, I don't know I'm going to I'm going uh, to rate the film On I'm going to re- rate it in the Nightmare Series not just in general Let's, let's rate them uh, Where would you put Nightmare If you were ranking uh, the films in order uh, What do you guys think who wants to kick it off? Are I've we only in, seen are,
3: three of the movies, and I, the the last time I think I think it was part five, and I saw it in nineteen ninety. So <laughs> go with what you know, David. Go yeah, go with what you know. I remember okay. kind
0: of liking that movie. I don't know the, uh, <laughs> I, I you know I don't one know. two and five. Put them in an order. What do you What do you think? <laughs> five, uh, two, one. There you go. (laughs) Five, five, two, one. Okay. There you go. Very fascinating. Let's see when we, you know, when we get to part five, if that holds for you. You got it. Yeah. I have no (laughs) idea. I wouldn't be able to tell you until we see it. All right. EK, what do you think? Where would you, what order would you put them in?
1: Uh, Well, like I said, even though I think two is the weakest of the bunch, I don't think it's my least favorite to watch. So I think as far as a Friday movie, I mean, a nightmare movie, what I would say is, uh, if I'm going from best to worst, I would go probably four, three, one, then maybe New Nightmare, then two, then six, then five. Oh and wow! The only the reason? <laughs> well, five is the one that that took me out of the franchise for the first time. That was the one that was a little, little far fetched and a little different, and it was a, getting a little goofy. Yeah. And so for that reason, okay. I've always been a little resentful of it, because up until that point, like Freddie could do no wrong. And then five came out and I was like, uh, what? Uh, <laughs> and then okay. that was followed up by six, which I would say arguably is even more of a mess. And it wasn't until New Nightmare that really it, it came back into its own. So so five, I think, is where it kind of spun off. You know, when you like a good band like Metallica, you talk about the classic albums. And then there's that one album that kind of that's when you stopped kind of listening. That's yeah. how five was for me. So even though two is the weaker one, uh, it's still way up there as far as the importance of the franchise.
0: Brent, what do you think? Where do you, where do you put them? Well, it's obviously we're not
2: counting the new, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street <laughs> no, or, that or, that away. or, yeah. or Freddie versus Jason. Is nope. not making Hold fun. on that one. So, uh, I'm probably pretty close with Ek. Although for me, like three and four are pretty interchangeable. Like I man, both of those like like you Ek. I had four on tape, and I watched that shit on repeat mm-hmm. over and over again. I wanted to learn nunchucks. Like I was like, let's
1: oh do yeah, this. yeah, that guy's off. Awesome. <laughs> you no, know, like oh, I yeah. was just like <laughs> for sure
2: all for it. But like I don't think four holds up for me without three in yeah, some yeah. weird kind of way. And so like three and four. Love them both, very interchangeable for me though. And then one uh and then probably new nightmare, uh, and then maybe two, five, six. I mm-hmm. think six is the worst. Like six was was six the there was the three D yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, oh, it's just Wizard mad. of
1: Oz and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So terrible.
2: Yeah. So yeah, like I think I mean, and I haven't seen five or six in a long time because they just don't. Like, there's no need. It's like really no reason for repeat watching. Like, we're going to have to watch him. We're going to have to watch him for the podcast. But, like, no. David's shaking his head. No. David's like, I'm not. I'm sorry, David. (laughs) I'm not.
1: You got got years to prepare, guys. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think it's probably somewhere like that. So it's like three, four, one, uh, New Nightmare, two, five, six. Okay. That's. Fair. I think that's pretty
0: close to mine. I'm going to go. I see. I'm going to go classic. I'm going to go number one as mm-hmm. number one. Can't go wrong. Um, One, three, four. I guess new nightmare and then two, but they're, those are all pretty packed together. Like mm-hmm. I really like all of those ones. So there's not a lot of, you know, spacing there, but then you could put about a mile, uh, before we get to, uh, I guess five and then six, I I just, I, I, I kind of like loathe those two. They just really uh, not a fan. Uh, They're, they're difficult to watch. And, and for a lot of reasons and Freddie's just in five, he's just too silly and they they pushed it too far with him at that point. And then 91, it's like, he's still kind of hanging around and uh, time had had passed for him. I felt like even then when it came out, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, see uh, I
2: definitely I definitely have tears. Uh, it's like three, four, one are like, I feel great. Uh-huh. two and two and new nightmare, I think are important, you know, but like I don't necessarily think they're great. Uh-huh. and then five and six are garbage. <laughs> <Like> just. <laughs> Basically five six and everything else like I don't know I kind of get a kick out of Freddy versus Jason I know we're not classifying or oh yeah
0: I enjoy that one
2: logging this one but I yeah. I will you know like there's you know it's like it's a it's a fun little mat mashup
0: it's always good to see Robert England back as Freddy Krueger so yeah. I'll take I'll take that anywhere I can get it now yeah um but yeah I just circling back to two I think this is a it's an important film for a lot of reasons and if you're a film of the nightmare, or a fan of the nightmare series, uh, it's a must-watch for, for you know, again for a variety of reasons. And uh, if you're a fan, a, a horror fan, like this has a lot as a standalone movie, it's got a lot to say. And obviously, there's so much subtext here that um, I think, in the grand scheme, uh, it's an important one to have seen. Uh, your opinion is whatever your opinion's going to be about it, but it's an important one to go back and check out. I think a lot of people miss this one based on its reputation or just not having an interest in it, but it's, I think you definitely need to go back and see it. If you haven't seen it in a while, uh, definitely give it a, give it a rewatch. It's on what it's on HBO max right now, I think. And I'm not sure where else as of this
3: recording. Yes.
0: As yes. I mean, but you can definitely go to your local video store Uh, for (laughs) us. It's video tech soon vidiots uh, where you can pick these up. DHS Laserdisc, uh, DVD whatever whatever uh, floats your boat so
1: I'd say I have the the most important copy in the world my part two is is precious because it that's- was gifted to me by none other than your host John Diner <laughs>
0: nice <laughs> that's yeah. true that's true I didn't yeah. want to
1: I didn't want to brag about it but it's uh,
0: <laughs> I helped contribute to the collection that's that's, that's it's right. my honor
2: yeah All I got with this stupid shirt. Thanks, John. (laughs) (laughs)
0: And that's what it says on your shirt, too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, guys, this has been a lot of fun looking back at this movie. Our our Shocktober, our month of Shocktober is going to continue. We've got, uh, you know, cats out of the bag. We've got one more look at our our next installment of the Halloween franchise, which would be part four uh, coming up uh, on our next episode. But uh ek tell us what's going on with laser graves and where everybody can find it and
1: uh, and what that podcast is all about uh well laser graves is a podcast about pop culture in the 1980s so we cover deep dives on big personalities you know that you might have known or musicians or actors or celebrities and then we also cover movies we cover books all kinds of things uh, events that may have happened that were important and um our One of our more recent deep dives was on a, a little kind of unknown Scottish post-punk act called Strawberry Switchblade that was very short-lived. They had one amazing album and then they were gone. And it's a really fascinating story. So we dug into that one and I enjoyed it. But we uh, just have been continuing to, to chip away at the cheesy films, too. You know, we did a film called Doom Asylum recently and we're looking at a bunch of other ones. So if it's got bad special effects and a low budget there's a good chance we're going to cover it at some point a lot
0: of a uh, metal show. metal horror right
1: yeah yeah we definitely love our heavy metal for yeah. sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's great so yeah and anywhere you can uh find podcasts you can catch laser graves right
1: yeah everywhere you get your podcast or you can go to lasergraves.com and uh, see all the back episodes there nice nice that's awesome and uh, you can
0: always find us on Twitter, Instagram, where Reconsentimation podcast. Uh, of course, check out our back catalog at uh or you know anywhere you get your podcasts: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all that good stuff. But um, I uh, I thank everybody. Thank you guys for coming to the studio. It's late at night here. It's spooky. It's it's a little too spooky for. For me and david so uh, we got to wrap it up and get out there's everybody's gone i mean the lights are off except for <laughs> here in the studio i'm i'm i need somebody to hold my hand going out to the car so <laughs> i got you all, all right. right thank you thank you david all right guys we'll uh we'll see you next time on reconcimation all right thank you guys
2: take care bye now